We turn to the book of James. James chapter 2. We'll read the entire chapter. We take our text from the first verse. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. 
We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, our text is verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, as we go away from the table of the Lord, we do so as those that are humbled in the knowledge of our sin and those who desire to show love toward God and the brother. This evening we confessed that we are part of the Catholic Universal Church when we recited together the Apostles' Creed. God chose to himself a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he sacrificed his own son for our salvation. And he works in us that knowledge that we're unworthy. We don't deserve to be part of that glorious church. We go away from the table with that renewed sense and that wonder of God's goodness. Now that knowledge moves us to live in a manner that reflects the love of God toward those around us. Having experienced the love of God through the gospel and through the table, we must not and may not be respecters of persons. There's no place for racism, for a class system in our thoughts or in our conversation. God has looked down upon me in mercy. And now, I confess, he chose me apart from anything of myself. And I am called now to esteem others above self. It's easy to make the confession with our mouth that we're part of a Catholic church. But then... How do we live it? That's far more difficult. We have increasingly all the nations represented in the United States here. We rub shoulders with those who look and act very differently than we and have different backgrounds and different goals and pursuits. But there are especially a number of ways that this text really speaks to us. First of all, there are times, as James himself uses this illustration, a stranger may come into our worship service and may join us in worship. How do we treat them? Do we treat them as James describes here in verses 2 and following? That we're going to show esteem towards some, but others we're going to say, why would they come? We don't want them in our church. They don't belong here. And therefore we would look down on them or desire that they leave again. But secondly, we have family members. How do we treat our family members? What criteria do we establish that controls our interactions with and our befriending one of another? But then even broader, there's the congregation that's gathered here in this place as a body of Jesus Christ. How do we interact with each other? On what basis do we fellowship one with another? Do we allow wealth, social standing, athletics, or any other things to determine our fellowship and our communion with each other. Beloved, this is a sin that we must face and confess. This is a sin against which you and I do battle. And we look at it under the theme, walking in faith without respect of persons. First of all, we look at the respect of persons here. Secondly, the seriousness of the sin. And finally, the walk in true faith. My brethren, have not the faith 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. James here is appealing to you and to me concerning what we have by the wonder of God's grace. We are brethren. My brethren. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We're those who are been, have been made members of one body by a marvelous wonder of grace. And Jesus Christ has gifted us with the gift of faith, a faith that unites us to himself, so that the result is that spiritually we are brought to the same level. There is no difference between Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, in the church of Jesus Christ. The marvelous grace of God is a wondrous leveling power by which God puts everyone on the same level. We're all sinners saved by grace. And we've tasted of the mercy. We've tasted of the grace of God. We've been reminded of that this morning. God did not reserve his grace. He didn't reserve his mercy for just some who had attained a certain social standing or financial prominence or some who had accomplished certain activities or performed certain works that God set as conditions. God does not reserve his love only for those who are worthy. God shows that love unconditionally, graciously. And God is no respecter of persons. That's the powerful point that God makes clear throughout all of history. God is not a respecter of persons. God brings into the covenant community those who have no place of themselves. God brings individuals who are downtrodden, those who are gross sinners, and God brings them to conversion and brings them into the church of Jesus Christ. And again and again, we read in the scriptures of that wonder of God's grace. Sometimes we have family members that we're embarrassed of. Sometimes we hesitate to tell others of our family tree because there's so many individuals in there that we're ashamed of. Think of Jesus. God pulled into Jesus's family tree into his line, individuals like Rahab and Tamar and many others. Sinners that would have made his family tree look very negative, very bad, humbling in a sense for one who is righteous and holy. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to dine with and to bring salvation to those who knew themselves unworthy. God saves his children from all different economic, social backgrounds. And God comes to us as he did to the early church through James and says, knowing that you are brothers and sisters together who have been given the gift of God's grace and the wonder of faith, why are you playing favorites? They were being respecters of persons. Now from the tense of the verb here, we determine that James is not talking about something that might happen in the future. He's talking about a present activity that's taking place in the congregation. This isn't something abstract. And he's talking about that which was continuing. Stop having respect of persons, James says, by the inspiration of God. And God knows that that same spirit of pride lives within us. And the Spirit comes to us with that same admonition. Stop having respect of persons. And we confess that too often in pride we're guilty. 
What does that mean with respect of persons? The word that's used here, respect of persons, is a compound verb made up of two different words. And those two words, strikingly, are that of face and receiving. So that we can understand the idea, it's that we receive someone because of their face. That's the literal idea of that respect of persons. You respect and receive or you reject someone based on their outward appearance, based on your first impression with them, how they look, what they do, what color of skin, their social standing, their dress, whatever it might be. That becomes the standard then on which we judge these individuals. Perhaps we know of sins they committed in the past. We're conscious of their background, their family history. And so immediately we jump then to conclusions and we begin now to treat them on the basis of that respect. And beloved, you know how this works. And I know how this works. Sadly, we do this too often. We make a judgment based on perhaps what we see or what we know. Maybe that person doesn't work as hard as we do, so we look down on them. Perhaps that one has less than we do, or this one has family connections that we would look down on. We think that we're better than they because of some kind of connection that they have that would bring them down. Maybe we know their background, and we would say, that person, that person wants to join the church, wants to attend the worship service? That's despicable. We can't have those kind of people in a church of Jesus Christ. And so we become guilty of respect of persons. We form an opinion of someone based on pride. Our judgment perhaps is that we will befriend this one because this one can help us and this one perhaps can enhance us. But if this person can't benefit me in any way, why would I waste my time with them? And so we form our opinion, not in connection with God's word, not in connection with the wonder of God's grace or by walking according to faith, but we do it on the basis of our personal assessment. And then on the basis of that judgment, we treat them a certain way. If our opinion is good, we're going to treat them good. If our opinion is negative, then we're going to treat them unfavorably. May speak roughly to them, maybe. Maybe we don't offer them the same things we offer to someone else. We elevate whom we desire, and whom we desire, we put down. There's a snobbery here that James is addressing. Running around with your nose in the air as though you're more worthy than someone else, and that you're looking down on others because of the clothes they're wearing, because of their social standing, because of whatever it might be. You're only willing to shake hands with some maybe and and not with others. You're only willing to talk with some and you're not going to communicate with others. You're only going to invite certain ones perhaps into your home. I remember at times as a young person, and perhaps this was a sin on my part, but at young people's conventions, I would get a sense that this kind of thing was going on. Some people from some schools or from some churches, it seems, would have very little to do with others from other congregations. And this favoritism, this respect of persons, so quickly enters into the school life, the life of our children, our young people. Classmates are shunned. Others are made popular. At issue are things that 
they have little control over. The clothes that they wear, what they look like, how athletic they are, the gifts that God has given them with regard to their academics. Untold hurt, untold grief is caused to some young people and some children because of the cruelty of their classmates. And so we have to examine ourselves. Are we guilty of this kind of respect of persons? Then there's the favoritism that takes place in the realm of worship. And that James here describes in verses 2 and 3 in a very concrete way. Two people come into the sanctuary. One is dressed nicely, obviously well-to-do. The other is dressed poorly, in rags. And what happens? The one who's wealthy, everybody's flocking around that one. He's given a prominent place to sit. People are friendly. They're quick to offer their own seat to that one. They want to make him feel at home. They want him to come back. Perhaps he can be a benefit to them. Another comes in who's not well off. He's poor. He's snubbed. People look at him and they quickly turn away. He smells. We don't want this one here. They don't want to talk with him. They don't acknowledge him. They don't offer him their seat. He looks like he's dressed in rags. Instead, they say, this isn't the kind of person that we want in our church. Therefore, they send him somewhere lowly, just hoping that maybe he'll disappear. Maybe he'll go away. Beloved, does that sound familiar? That's the way that we not only act often towards strangers, but tragically, it's often our tendency toward fellow believers. Do they have the right clothes? Are they buying them in the right places? Are they on our same economic or social standing? Do they enjoy the same kind of sports and activities that we enjoy? These people may be members with us of the same church, but due to the fact that they're not like us, we're suspicious of them, but even more seriously, we look down on them and we esteem ourselves above them. Now we all understand there's a place for closer friendship, closer fellowship with some within the church of Jesus Christ. Some of us have more in common. That's understandable. That's not what James is speaking of here. We also realize that there's a proper place for honor and respect toward those who are older or those whom God has put in positions of honor and in positions of respect. So that, that's not also what is being spoken of here. But he's speaking of a selfish esteem that is motivated by personal pride or personal advantage. James is talking about withholding fellowship or showing friendship deliberately because we have something to gain or we have nothing to gain. Now this can be especially true sometimes with those who are widows or widowers, those who are more impoverished within the congregation, perhaps those who are divorced, those who are single, or those who are married that don't have children, or those who are single who have children. Without even realizing it, perhaps, perhaps we treat them as second-class members. We don't make them feel as welcome as they ought. We're partial in ourselves. And what that really means here is that we're selfish. Rather than living out of the awareness that I am a sinner saved by grace, that I am called to love God and love the neighbor, I'm living in love towards self. And I'm conducting myself in a manner that 
comes across as though I deserve what I have. We're concerned about myself, our self. How will this person advance me? How will this person benefit me? How will my contact with this person serve my advantage? Now that's the question that we're taught to ask throughout all of life. We're constantly concerned about that in terms of business and other situations. Who we surround ourselves is going to make a difference as to what kind of promotions we may be able to get or how we can advance in a company. And therefore, we're concerned about that. What am I going to get out of this relationship? How is this going to benefit me? But James says, those are the wrong questions to be asking as Christians. Are you not partial? He says in verse 4. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? And there's no answer required, is there? You know the answer, and I do. We stand shamed before God and before his word. Now what is it that makes this sin so serious? The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what James here is speaking of. He's talking about the way in which that faith is exercised and demonstrated in the Christian life. You say you have faith. How are you living? How are you conducting yourself? The manner in which you're living is going to demonstrate the sincerity or lack of sincerity of that faith. Now James is here talking about the faith of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus Christ conduct himself? How did Jesus treat his own? God did not save his church based on being a respecter of persons. God saved his church according to his sovereign, gracious, good pleasure. We sometimes can act as though we deserve to have been chosen. We deserve something, whereas that person? No, I know that person. I know what that person has done. That person, that person doesn't even deserve to come to church. They ought to just stay away. That spirit of pride so easily and quickly can get a hold of us. Jesus Christ treated his children equally. The true faith does not behave in the way of partiality. If we're having respect of persons, we're walking contrary to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't look at skin color. He didn't look at how much money individuals had. He doesn't look at what kind of clothes I wear. He loves each of his children, and he judges them the same. He looks on the heart, and he gives them the gift of faith, and he works in their heart the wonder of his love and his care. The central concern of Jesus Christ as he walked on this earth was not himself, but the glory of God. How can I glorify God? True faith is directed to the glory of God. And as we conduct ourselves, and as we interact, and as we have relations with others, that becomes our chief concern. How will God be glorified in and through my interaction with these whom God has put on my pathway? As Jesus walked, and as he lived in the midst of this life, he looked on the heart. He sought to honor and to glorify God by saving those whom the Father had given him. And he saw that true glory, that true glory was found in Jehovah God. That was the source and that was the wonder of that glory. And that was the glory he alone was interested in. 
He was willing to be mocked, to be ridiculed for his love for the poor and for the downtrodden, the outcast who were his own. He was not ashamed to eat and to drink with them who were sinners, to fellowship with them who had confessed their sin and now were living in the conscious wonder of gratitude to him for what he had done for them. And Jesus was even willing to say this, those who are guilty of more sin are going to be more thankful for the wonder of grace in their life. Now, especially against the Pharisees. The Pharisees looking down on those who were sinful, acting as though they weren't guilty of those grievous sins, not willing to confess their sin, whereas these sinners willing to acknowledge their sin, crying out to God for mercy and desiring to walk in humble thankfulness to God, living in the awareness of their sin and the marvelous character of the grace of God. The Pharisees were not walking in a spirit of thankfulness. Those who are walking in respect of persons are not conducting themselves in a spirit of gratitude. True faith, James says here, by the inspiration of the Spirit, will not respect persons. True faith will not walk in partiality. True faith is worked by God in Jesus Christ, and it results in us being joined to God by the Holy Spirit. And that life that we live then is a life not for self. It's a life for God and for his glory. James is trying to stress here the way that true faith exerts itself. True faith is not selfishly trying to establish relationships and seeing what one can get out of things for self. True faith is lived to the glory and honor of Jehovah God. Millions claim, I have faith. How do you know if your faith is true? That's the concern here that James is addressing. How do you know that your faith is true faith? Faith looks away from self, and faith looks to the living God, to Jesus Christ. Faith does not seek self-glory, Faith does not seek self-prominence. Faith seeks the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And faith seeks to promote the glory of God. Faith is willing to spend oneself for the sake of others. It reflects the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, willing to give himself for the sake of those whom the Father gave him. That faith displayed by Jesus Christ in his willingness to wash the feet of his disciples and others to serve them, to seek their good. Now that comes out really in that phrase, the Lord of glory. If we just look at that for a few moments. The Lord of glory, that's important. Glory is not found in outward things. Glory doesn't rest in money and clothing. Doesn't that lie at the heart of our partiality? We all lust after glory. We want glory. We want honor. We want fame. We want people to acknowledge us. And we believe that that glory comes from earthly prominence. It comes perhaps from money. It comes from honor. We esteem those who are prominent, hoping that that prominence they have will rub up on us, and that becomes our glory. So that we're focused wrong. We're seeking earthly glory. Glory is not found in gold and silver. The Lord is the Lord of glory. And that glory is the glory of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
Glory is not found in social standing. It's not found in wealth. All the things that the world has to offer cannot attain the glory that God is speaking of here. This glory is found in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. And the wonder of salvation is that Jehovah God takes his children, and through Jesus Christ, he takes we who were poor, and he raises us to a wealth that we cannot even begin to fathom. He brings us into glory, a glory that's from on high. Now this reveals and it pricks us as to how we overesteem the things of this life. We think the things of this life will grant us glory. God says, no, through Jesus Christ, you have the highest glory and the highest honor that one could ever receive. That glory and honor is given to every one of God's children by a wonder of his grace. Who are you now to despise one upon whom God has bestowed that glory, that honor. Who are you to look down on one who has been given that glory? God has taken the poor, the despised, the sinners, those who are worthless in themselves, spiritually destitute, dead, and God has lifted them. He's given them a glory to which nothing can compare. God has taken those who have been treated badly, who have been abused and despised of men. And God has taken them to his table of fellowship. He's fed them. He's nourished them spiritually. He's taken those who had nothing, and he's given to them a glory to which nothing can compare. The highest honor a man, woman, young person, or child could ever receive. He's made them his own children. He's adopted us into his own family. Now on earth, he makes some of his children rich, he makes some poor. But neither of those social standings are important when it comes to one's place in the kingdom. On earth, God makes it so that some are single, others marry, some have children, others don't. God causes hardship, he causes affliction in the lives of some. It matters not whether one is married whether one is not married. It matters not whether one has children, one doesn't have children. Your gold rings, your fancy dresses don't sway him. Your contacts and your individuals in high places with whom you enjoy golf games and other opportunities are meaningless to God. No flesh can glory in the presence of God. He wears robes of righteousness he has the golden rings of perfect fellowship. And he takes us and he makes us heirs of that kingdom. Embracing us in love and bringing us into the joy of his presence. And giving us to know that we are children of our heavenly father. All respect of persons seeks to take away the glory from Christ. And it tries to make the things of this life more valuable than the salvation that we have in Christ. And therefore, all respect of persons is contrary to the law. That James continues on in the chapter to address. The law requires what? Love God and love the neighbor. All respect of persons is contrary to that love of the neighbor. Sometimes we're tempted to think that our racial comments or 
Maybe our disparaging jokes are not really that serious. Like all of sin, we try to justify it. We try to talk it down. That's the way it was in James' day. The Jews of James' day were thinking, James, you're majoring in the minors. This is not a big deal. You don't need to make so much of this. This is so minor. James makes clear, true faith seeks to walk according to all God's commandments. Respecting persons is not just bad manners. This is a violation of God's law. God commands us to embrace his family in love. He's taken us into his household, and he requires that we live in fellowship and communion with one another in Christ by the Spirit. And that we show that grace, we show that compassion, that care, that love toward others. As we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6, verse 10. It starts in our marriages, esteeming my husband, my wife. How easy it is it not to look down on, to find all kinds of faults, to begin to think, I'm better than they. I'm more worthy. I'm more deserving. God says, no. You need to embrace one another in love. And that begins by humbling yourself and acknowledging that you are a sinner saved by grace and acknowledging the call that God gives. Love the neighbor as thyself. You say you love God, but you don't love the neighbor. You know, John has words for us concerning that. How can you say you love someone that you can see when you can't even see God and you claim that you love him? Now you're not loving someone you can see and you're saying you love someone you can't see? God says, if you do not love your neighbor, you're not loving me. If we're judging men based on first impressions, based on what we observe or see about them, if we're walking in pride, we're not maintaining that commandment, love the neighbor as thyself. You can't say, I can be racist, I can be a respecter of persons, I'll still be able to live the rest of my life in obedience to God and to his commandments. You've broken one of the chief commandments. And sin against one commandment, as James points out here, makes us guilty of sin against all the rest. Now, what was the temptation of the Jews? They said, but we have liberty, we have liberty. And so James addresses that. You don't understand what the law of liberty is. You're going to be judged by that law of liberty, James says in verse 12. What is the law of liberty? It's freed you from selfishness. The law of liberty is such that Christ now has freed you from yourself and given you now the freedom to serve him and to show forth his praise and to live unto him with joy and with thankfulness. As those who confess that I am a sinner, that my salvation is all of grace, I am moved to love God and to love the neighbor. I've been freed from the selfishness of serving self and pursuing love of self. And now I'm able to serve God by the wonder of his spirit living within me. I'm able to walk by faith. That's the power of faith in the child of God. The walk in true faith is a walk in love for God's sake. Not selfish, not what can I get out of it, not how can it serve me, but pursuing the love of God, and the glory of God. And so we live together as saints in that judgment of love. We live together with saints 
in that same judgment, recognizing that we don't know the heart. We can't judge the heart. But nevertheless, we walk in love, that judgment of love toward one another. The Canons of Dort expressing the teaching of Scripture binds us to that judgment of love, not only with regard to those within our congregation, but even those outside. We read in the third, fourth head, Article 15, with respect to those who make an external profession of faith and live regular lives, we are bound after the example of the apostle to judge and speak of them in the most favorable manner. For the secret recesses of the heart are unknown to us, As to others who have not yet been called, it's our duty to pray for them to God, who calls the things that are not as if they were. But we are in no wise to conduct ourselves toward them with haughtiness, as if we made ourselves to differ. The fact that I am different is a wonder of God's grace. And it's that to which I owe my all to God for. What I am is all of God. It's all of his spirit. It's all a wonder of his goodness and his mercy. And in the eyes of God, all of his children are spiritual equals. The poor man, the rich man, on the same level. Romans 1.14 says we are debtors to the bond or to the free. We're called to serve however we're able. We're to feed the lambs and feed the sheep. We're to serve as young people, as children, within the home. How can you serve your siblings, serve your parents? Life does not revolve around you, it revolves around God. And God who's called you now says, your calling now is to treat others with that spirit of love, that spirit by which you seek the good of those whom God puts on your pathway. It doesn't matter, again, whether God has given a husband or a wife or children. It matters not how much wealth, how much fame, how much honor. It doesn't matter that God never gave one an opportunity to serve in office in his church. Each of his children are bound by faith to him in love and are called now to serve him and to promote his glory in everything that we do and all that we take up. Knowing the marvelous wonder of the gospel, we confess our unworthiness not only, But we walk by faith. We lay hold upon the wonder of that salvation. And we seek to live in love toward God and the neighbor. When we're not treating others equally, we're making a false statement concerning God and concerning us. We're boasting in ourselves and implying that my salvation is due in part to my work. How well I've done. How I've been better than another. And we imply then that God is a respecter of persons. We confess, beloved, our pride, our selfishness. There's no boasting. There's no esteeming of self above others. We know our sin. We know our sinfulness. And we know the wonder that our salvation is all of grace. And as we confess ourselves, chief sinners, our spirit and our attitude then, Toward others reflects the love with which God loved us. And what is it in which we rejoice? Mercy. We rejoice in mercy. I don't rejoice in myself. I turn my focus away from myself. And I rejoice in the marvelous mercy and the grace that God has shown toward me.
The brother may not do things the way I do. The sister may not keep her home as I do. The skin color of the neighbor may be different than mine. The person may not smell as I would desire them to smell, but rejoice in the wondrous mercy that God has shown toward you. The judge did not hold you accountable for your sins. He forgave you. And by a wonder of grace, he continues to forgive you again and again and again. And now we are drawn to Christ, the Lord of glory. And we desire to show forth the praise of him who's called us out of darkness into light, that we might give all honor, all glory, all praise to him alone. Then, beloved, by God's grace, going away from the table, we will not be respecters of persons. We will be those who are eager to serve, those who are eager to give, those who are eager to promote the well-being and the good of others, giving evidence that that faith out of which we live is a true living faith, that demonstrates its obedience, that demonstrates itself by obedience, all to the praise and glory of God. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us. So proud we are, so eager we are as the Pharisees of old to look upon ourselves more highly than we ought. But as we go away from the table, reminded of the wonder of thy goodness, thy mercy, and thy grace toward us, sinners, undeserving. May we walk humbly before thy face, and may we reflect that in our interaction, in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, as well as with those with whom thou dost put us into contact with. And May thy name be exalted and magnified, as our desire is to give all praise and honor to the one who is the Lord of glory. Amen.